Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And that was the walk-up music for Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. Salman, it's such a pleasure to have you back with us in the studio after remotely talking to you for the last how many years? I don't remember. <laughs> but goodness, it's just fabulous to see you. And I appreciate you making the effort to come to the studio and particularly appreciate it given what we'd like to talk to you about this morning. There was a, well, I don't know quite how to describe what was in the onion because it's hard to describe what's in the onion. You know, Monty loves the onion, and Monty used to have his, his favorite onion headline, ACLU dis- defends rights of Nazis to destroy ACLU headquarters, something like that. <laughs> um, uh, the onion has a way of putting things in a way that actually contextualizes major events in a significant way. And we were talking just before we came on the air about one of those headlines from The Onion that gets to a significant issue that is roiling the world today. Maybe you want to describe it. I know you you, you had a reaction to it and have a lot to say about it. So bring our listeners in on our conversation, if you would, please. Uh, thank you, Bill. And uh, I would say I mean, the the subheading of this segment was uh, ridiculously large and largely ridiculous universe. <laughs> and oftentimes, um, in some sense, talking about the universe and how big it is, it puts things in perspective of how silly these things are, what we humans do. But uh, with the current situation, I think this is one of those cases that uh, I don't think we should be distracted by space and that's the reason why what's happening down here is so important to focus on and uh, however short time frame we have on earth in terms of the cosmic context we try to do like you know sort of like you know be in a fair and just way so i mean i think that's how much we, we can we, do. we should we should do what we can given you know our time on earth uh, you know, 50, 60, 70, maybe 80, yeah. 90 years compared to, well, how, 14 billion? Still, we should right. take a shot we at it. We should take, yeah. We should be good citizens of the universe. Right, and and perhaps that, that may sort of like, you know, uh, focus us in that sense. So here is a case where this is a, a, um, a pretty prominent uh, editor of eLife. His name is uh, Michael Eisen, and he was recently fired for uh, sharing a me- media post in which uh, he shared actually an Onion article as you were talking about before, the headline was, uh, this was just a few days after uh, October 7th uh, when the bombing had started in Gaza as well, that dying Gazans criticized for not using last words to condemn Hamas. And, you know, uh, as we were talking right before that too, that, I mean, this is a pretty biting headline, uh, but also it gets to a particular point of what's going on. Right, and the point that's being made, of course, by The Onion is that the persons who are dying in Gaza probably have other thoughts on their mind other than what uh, what was done to Israelis uh, in the attack. I mean, it's a matter of perspective. And I think it is a biting and in- incisive and insightful headline because it really talks to the issue of what perspective do we have? What lens do we bring to the world? And he actually uh, 
what he wrote next to it was that the onion speaks with more courage, insight, and moral clarity than the leaders of every academic institution uh, put together. I wish they were they were in an onion university. So that was uh, that went with it, and he uh, immediately um, uh, felt sort of like you know pushback on that, and he actually very clearly he actually responded to that a day later and he said every sane person on earth is horrified and traumatized by what Hamas did and wants it to never happen again all the more so as a Jew with an Israeli family so this is Michael Eisen uh, but I am also horrified by the collective punishment already being meted out on Gazans and the worst that is about to come the onion is not making light of the situation and nor am I these articles are using satire to make a deadly serious point about this horrific tragedy. And then what happened to him? And then he was asked, actually, the board of eLife asked him to resign. And eLife, again, is what? Uh, eLife is a science journal. It's a prominent biology journal uh, in there. And uh, they asked him to resign, and he refused. Uh, he said that you'll have to fire me, which they did. And uh, since then, a number of other uh, sub-editors of the same journal have also resigned in protest of him being fired. I think we should pro probably add to this story. Uh, along the way, there was a call before he was fired, I think, to uh, suspend uh, contributions, submissions to the magazine because mm. of what he did. Right. So they were saying sort of like, you know, that people should not submit there to this journal. should be a boycott and of So sort. and so forth. Yes, exactly. So... So it's a broader thing, and and again, I mean, these are things that are happening at other places as well. But this is one of the very. I mean, I'm not a Middle East expert. I mean, so I should be clear. So what I've been looking at it more in the context of what is happening in science and science-related things, and this is uh, an example of the type of thing that got him fired, and and. And other people are facing far more repercussions regarding that. How is it that in a scientific community, a perspective, and it was a mixed perspective, this headline is, raises all sorts of issues, uh, that calls for being dismissed from a position. How does that come about? What's the connection other than a visceral reaction that readers might have? I mean, this is actually not that far removed from what is happening on college campuses. I mean, there are protests going on on college campuses, and actually there are protests going on in most of the major cities in the world as well, uh, although you don't hear that much about it on in major newspapers. But in academic institutions, there are protests going on, but if you look at the statements that come from the administrations, and of course we've uh, seen sort of like that made headlines was the Harvard uh, University at, at Harvard, the doxing of students who signed pro-Palestinian um, letter and then in Colombia as well, NYU. At UMass, there were 55 students uh, that got arrested, and the reason for arrest was uh, like they were trespassing uh, in some sense. Nevertheless, they are young people that are being arrested uh, on college campuses. And you look at the administration statements, and they are, they are pretty sort of like, you know. Uh, banal, I would say, like, sort of like, or, or I would say, sort of like, you know, they are trying to be edging, and part of it has to do with the pressure that is coming from the donors, and that was the case in Harvard uh, law firms that have rescinded job positions. In fact, the headline today in the New York Times is about that law firms have actually sent notices to a number of universities 
and then there is a slope like you know that okay and then it is in the context of anti-semitism but i think the part of the debate that is taking place is like you know okay so where is the line of anti-semitism versus the criticism of israel and criticism of the bombing of gaza and in many of these cases about the call for ceasefire the call for ceasefire itself is being considered by some as a provocative measure or as an anti-israeli statement and so on and so forth so so i mean i think that is where some of these things lie in so that is so in that context and just to yeah, amplify yeah. what you're saying the same is true for islamophobia the relationship between a critique of what Hamas did or what's happening to the Palestinians and its translation into hatred of all things Muslim. That's exactly right. And, uh, and so, and, and again, uh, for student, uh, I mean, they, we have our leaders and we, we can talk about uh, Biden as well uh, because the kind of statements he has made are deeply problematic. Um, and he continues to make those statements uh, for example, I mean, I mean, I'm just baffled by uh, by by the fact that, uh, for example, he m- mentioned that he doesn't trust any numbers that are coming from the Palestinians. Number of persons, number killed. of persons killed over there. But on the other hand, he has also talked about justifying military aid to Israel and to Ukraine in the context that it would be good for American economy, and. And then the U.S. was amongst the very few countries which actually voted against the ceasefire. And because of U.S. voting against it, the resolution got vetoed at the the United Nations Nations General Assembly. And so, I mean, it's just bizarre to think in the context that our president, and and again, sort of like, you know, I don't have to say that, sort of like, you know, I mean, as taxpayers and so on and so forth, um, that would vote against the ceasefire. And, and, and that is from the Biden side, not to talk about the GOP presidential candidates who are talking about canceling student visas who are, pro- who are participating in these protests. I, I want to talk to you about student visas, and I want to talk to you about your experience as well. I need to add, I think, that part of what Biden was doing was trying to tamp down the GOP criticism that the United States can't afford this. Look how much money we're giving to Ukraine. Look how much we're giving to uh, Israel. Uh, We need to take care of ourselves, really an isolationist position, and particularly with regard to Ukraine. Uh, And Biden's trying to say, no, 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 it's helping the economy. It's not hurting the economy. And so he's kind of put in a weird position, and sometimes he speaks really badly. uh, But but I think making Professor uh, Hamid's point was that Biden... Yesterday, he finally calls, called for a pause. He couldn't say ceasefire because Benjamin Netanyahu just done this sort of dramatic uh, uh, recitation about all the things that a ceasefire would cause Israel to suffer. So instead of calling for a ceasefire, he called for a pause. And I was like, pause? Yeah, really? yeah and, I, and I don't think actually that's uh, a, a bad position for Biden. He's saying the same thing. He just doesn't want to use words that are going to put... Israel and Netanyahu in, in, in a uh, bizarre place politically. They should uh, in be in Israel. a bizarre place politically. Well, but it's is, wrong what they're doing. As, as long as you get uh, uh, water and fuel and food and medical supplies to the people, you can call it bupkis for what I'm, I'm concerned. Get the people what they need. 
The rest of it is uh, political maneuvering. Um, I, I wonder if you would uh, care to share with us, uh, Professor Salman Hamid, uh, your experience with regard to uh, visas and student visas, because that's another aspect of this that is, I think, appalling. So share with us. Yeah, I just, I mean, again, from the broader context of other things that take place, there is so much to keep track of. So while we are talking about all of these things, there are uh, former President Trump has tweeted about it um, and uh, about the fact that if under his administration, he would cancel and deport, cancel visas of students, foreign students who are participating in these protests. Even though in the United States, we have a First Amendment right for everyone is here to speak their mind peacefully. That's part of the allure and the promise of democracy. And there are people here saying, if you come here and use the rights that we guarantee everyone here, we're going to throw you out of the country. What the? And and that's the reason why I've come here, because I knew I was coming to the right place to talk about <laughs> these particular issues. Shut so, up, will you, please? <laughs> and, and DeSantis, for example, has explicitly said, so this is, you have just quoted, so DeSantis said, you don't have a right to be here on a visa. You don't have a right to be studying in the United States. And Tim Scott, who is considered as sort of like, you know, the nicer of the GOP candidates, he says if any of those students on college campuses are, are foreign nationals on a visa, they should be sent back to their country. So here you have, I mean, in some sense, I mean, it sends a chilling effect. I mean, it's not just a chilling effect. I mean, you've been terrified in terms of just showing your face near any of these protests because you are vulnerable uh, to that. And this is the type of thing that happened after 9-11 as well. And again, I keep on, whenever I get a chance, uh, people don't, uh, many people don't know uh, about this thing, uh, perhaps in Western Mass um, as well, that there was a national registration program. It was called National Entry Exit Registration System that was uh, instituted after 9-11 under President Bush, under the newly formed Homeland Security. I, at that time, I was on H-1 visa, meaning to say that uh, I'm here, I'm working legally, but I got a letter. Uh, this was, I think, 2000 and late 2002. I got a letter, and that said that on January, whatever, 21st or something like that, I have to show up at 8 o'clock uh, at the immigration office in Boston. And uh, I have to bring my credit card, debit card, social security card, and be there for an interview. And they said, and the letter said, unless you have a really good excuse of not making it, you should make it. And, and I did. I was at that time a postdoc at Smith College and, and UMass. That was like, you know, I'm an academic. What's the big deal? And sure enough, my interview questions were, were nice. But they did make What were they looking for? So this was uh, for all males between the ages of 16 and 45 from 25 countries that were here on immigration, sort of like, you know, either on H-1 or F-1 visas. And you were here from? And I was here from Pakistan. I thought that was a New York accent. <laughs> and so I was, so, and I, so I showed up over there and uh, they photocopied a social security card, debit card, all the credit cards that I had. And um, then they asked me questions, oh, what do I do, where, about, where do I work, and so on and so forth, and, and I was let go. 
I actually used that opportunity. I had never been to the um, New England uh, Aquarium, and so I went over there. and <laughs> And at nine o'clock in the nine thirty in the morning, I actually was uh, watched uh, sort of like you know a, a penguins and one of the, the sea lions show with a bunch of first graders, which was a lot of fun actually. <laughs> I should say I, I tried. Welcome to America. <laughs> but but I also have to say that, and part of the reason was, I really wanted. A release from that. I was like, I mean, this is insane. Because and the implication was, the implica- unless you, if you got the answers wrong, they were going to deport you. And a lot of people or lock you up. And a lot of people at that time, there was a fear. And those, and, and not to mention that twenty-four out of twenty-five countries were Muslim-majority countries. The twenty-fifth country was North Korea, and so a lot of people actually. Uh, looked for the border and they were leaving out and I remember sort of like around that time there were stories about the fact that uh, you have uh, people going in northern near Buffalo going into Canada and it's extremely cold but people were outside in tents because of uh, the lines that were taking to get out of the country and a lot of people got deported from there. We are speaking with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. More with Salman right after this. Let them talk. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. Our school communities thrive when they address students, families, and educators' well-being. That's why the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education offers schools and districts the tools to meet these needs through our Office of Student and Family Supports. Caring for each other, growing together, back to school, better. Visit doe.mass.edu slash growing together. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday? Kohl's Building Supply? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Kohl's Building Supply in North Amherst provides the quality materials for any home improvement project. Visit the Kitchen Design Showroom, the Benjamin Moore Paint Store, or their Flooring Showroom. You'll find a caring team with the knowledge and expertise to answer all your questions. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. at whmp.com. At Simply Safe, we've designed award-winning home security with advanced sensors, HD cameras, and now this 24/7 lifeguard protection, only from Simply Safe. Now, monitoring agents can see and speak to intruders through our new indoor camera to help stop crime in real time and for fast police response. Get 20% off any new system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/radio. Advanced home security, 24/7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. There's no safe like Simply Safe. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Buzz and I continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. This is Salman Hamid's universe, also known as Salman Hamid's ridiculously large and largely ridiculous universe. We were talking during the break, Salman, about the extraordinary rise in anti-Semitism across the world and in the United States and here locally, 
as well as the extraordinary and frightening rise in Islamophobia here in Massachusetts, across the country. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts that will uh, give us your perspective on how the rise in hatred against two groups are both at the same time for wildly different reasons. How can we reconcile any of that with a worldview that has some optimism in it? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I think... As we were talking in the break, I'm asking as well. you to take two full minutes and solve <laughs> this problem now. But I mean, uh, we were talking about in the break as well that before this particular uh, incident uh, that that has happened, people actually that fought Islamophobia and people who fought anti-Semitism were seeing a lot of common ground because. Uh, and and also Black Lives Matter, and in fact the Palestinian cause actually have uh, a lot of overlap. Tanahisi Coates actually spoke yesterday uh, at an event about this thing. So so there are, I mean, I think it's about the essentializing. It's about treating people as monolithic, right? And so normally that's where it comes in that we see all this complexity in the people that we know, but you see another group, a different type of group, and you see them all in a particular light. And of course, other is like sort of like, no, othering makes a difference. I want to go back to something yeah. you were saying. You used the expression, I think, or Buzz uses the expression, uh, the dividing line between uh, anti-Semitism and uh, opposition to Israeli policies. And, and they're, they're teasing the, the differences out there, I think are, is a really important issue. Here, here's what struck me, and I'd really like your impression about this, Salman Hamid. We had a uh, uh, spokesperson for the uh, uh, Arab uh, Anti-Discrimination uh, com Committee, uh, and what struck me was the absolute refusal to express any sympathy or empathy for the 1,400 Israelis who were the victims of that uh, terrorist attack. And what strikes me as well is the implication, they're Israelis, they're occupiers, they're imperialists, they don't belong on our land, and shouldn't say this, but the implication is, and they kind of got what they deserved. And then you hear back from the Israeli government where they say, well, yes, because we're trying to get Hamas leaders in highly populated, densely populated areas, uh, civilians are going to die. And the implication is, and they didn't throw Hamas out as the rulers of Gaza and kind of implied, and they got what they deserved. We two sides saying these horrifying military uh, actions, and everyone got what they deserved. It makes me want to just throw up my hands and give up, but that's a bad idea too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where the element of humanity has to come first. I mean, what happened on October 7th that, I mean, anybody, I, again, the kind of quote that we were talking about before, I mean, that was insane. And that was horrific. And I think if people don't see that as a horrific thing that Hamas did, I think you're lacking in humanity. So I think there is, so, and, and, and I think it's the empathy that is the central component. And it's the empathy that leads to others' positions, other, to see others more than just a sort of like, you know, category. And I think once you see that just as a category, then it's much easier to 
discriminate or to sort of like, you know, attack and so on and so forth, because you just see them as a blank category without their humanity. We all, but, Salman yeah. Hamid, we struggle to put this in a bigger contest. And I, I always remember once I spoke to the League of Women Voters, and it was uh, when I was representing Guantanamo people, and there was a lot of Islamophobia, the era that you're talking about. Um, and and I, I happened to be speaking on the day of Haley's Comet coming, which comes, what is it, every year it comes, right? By, uh, 76 years, yeah. Oh, 70, 76 Haley's years. Comet, yeah, 76 years. Yeah. 76 years. Maybe it wasn't Haley's. Whatever it was, I analogized. It was one of those outer space things. That's what Buzz <laughs> is trying to say. Something happened in outer space at exactly the time he was talking to the League of Women Voters. That isn't what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is this, this repeating thing. It's part of what humanity does with respect to otherism, which you just called otherism. Right. That, that, and I'm sure people who are black, uh, we always have black, black uh, in the valley here. People who are black are listening to this conversation and saying, yeah, we're kind of familiar with it. from Because it rears its ugly head. You think it's, it's quiet, and we're all striving to be increasingly, we hope in becoming more civilized means we can come to understand it, put it in this place, and understand we're all together in this adventure we call life. But... Um, it doesn't. It manifests itself like like a comet does. Periodically, it just raises its head. Right, and 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 so if if I can add one more thing to that, because I mean, I also think that we cannot start history at a particular time. So I mean, I think it's absolutely horrific what happened on October seventh, and I think and I think this is insane. That's insanity, right? But we cannot start history from October seventh. Okay. We reset it, and now let's go from there. We have to go back as well, and and that is also crucial that we look back at the last twenty years of what has been going on, uh, and it's not just Hamas. You also have the West Bank. What has been going on over there? Then we go back. Okay, well, let's look at last fifty years. We go back to nineteen sixty-seven. Then we go like, well, let's back go back to nineteen forty-eight. So that's where the nuance comes in. But in all of that, we have to take into account empathy. History is complicated. Politics is complicated. But in some sense, empathy, because we are humans, we know how to empathize. We can do that. And I think that is the central point. But if we start and we go like, okay, here is the line in the sand that I'm drawing. This is where we are starting the history. I think that creates a problem. I think it has to be thought of in a broader context. And that builds a view from outer space. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Can you, I know you have families who are not in the United States. Can you tell us at all how this war is being perceived in Pakistan or other places and or do you not want to comment on that? Well, I mean, I can comment on that. I mean, it's like, um, I mean, other than the, the governments uh, in Europe and, and the U.S., I mean, it, they're pretty anti-Israel st- sentiments are very high. And I think in many of those places, the anti-Israel and anti-Semitism, I think they are merging together. And I think that's where we have to, if we don't make those distinctions. So it's not just being here. Uh, there is censorship going on because it is about anti-Israel and it's being accused as anti-Semitism. The flip side is also happening in other parts of the world where it is not just anti-Israel, it's actually anti-Semitism and anti-Israel. So if we don't make a very clear statement here, where we actually, we have a much bigger stake in it because the U.S. government is funding um, the Israeli defense and we are directly, we have influence, 
You can imagine at other places we cannot then come out and say, wait a minute, this is not anti-Israel, this is anti-Semitism. So we have to make a very clear stance here in order to have a moral standing to tell people when it is actually anti-Semitism. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Hampshire College Professor Salman Hamid. Thanks so much for your insights. We really appreciate you. Thank and you very really much. We really appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you very Indeed. much. Thank you very much. And, and I hope there is a pause or ceasefire or whatever word we use. Uh, and, and we hope that uh, things get We join you in better. that hope. Thank you. We don't believe you because we the people are still here in the real. This no, is don't. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This week, state officials announced the first-ever limit on the number of families that could be provided emergency shelter, citing budget constraints. Governor Maury Healey announced a new cap of 7,500 families that can be admitted into the program at a time, as well as the start of a waitlist system. State officials expect to reach that cap by the end of the week. The reality we are facing now is this. We do not have enough space, service providers, or funds to safely expand beyond 7,500 families. On Wednesday, a Boston judge denied a motion that would have stopped the state agency from implementing this cap on services. A public forum will be held tonight to discuss the options for the Pioneer Valley Regional School District's facilities. The district is looking at options for either renovating existing buildings or building new ones. The forum will be held at 5.30 p.m. at Pioneer. Family night at GCC is tonight from 5 to 8 p.m. in the college's core lobby and will feature family activities as well as information about the new Mass Reconnect program. Mass Reconnect is a state-funded program that allows eligible Massachusetts residents to attend community college for free. A special town meeting has been called for Colerain on November 14th at 7 p.m. in the Colerain Elementary School. Residents will vote on the transfer of $50,000 from Highway Department wages to a new account for Highway Department contracted services for snow and ice removal. Mostly sunny today, a little bit warmer than yesterday with a high of 44 to 48. Light breeze out of the west-southwest. Mostly clear tonight. Evening temperatures in the 30s and 40s. An overnight low of 22 to 28. It's a sun cloud mix tomorrow. Warming trend continues with a high of 52 to 56. We'll be near 60 and dry over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. I'm former city councilor Bill Dwight. I've been in public service here in town spanning three decades. Now, I mention this because Gwen Agna is a candidate for re-election to the position of at-large school committee member. And I know that Gwen is admired throughout the region as a visionary educator and administrator, and most recently as a thoughtful and deliberative representative for our families and our children. Remember, with all at-large elections in Northampton, you have two votes, and I hope you'll join me by giving one of those two votes to Gwen Agna. Paid for by the Committee to Re-Elect Gwen Agna. Are you looking for space to host a private event? The Hangar Pub & Grill has you covered. Our Amherst, Westfield, and Pittsfield locations are perfect for birthday parties, reunions, corporate events, and more. Customizable menu options make party planning a breeze at an affordable price. Enjoy our award-winning wings along with our other in-house favorites. And don't forget the Amherst Brewing Beer. Visit hangarpub.com events to book today. High school is a time of discovery, of exploring the world and shaping your future. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. 
At the Hartsbrook School, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Textbooks give way to learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook students take their science studies into the woods and social studies into the community, working for food justice and applying their own solutions to issues such as climate change or food insecurity. Hartsbrook students connect with students worldwide with the Model UN and participate in exchange, traveling to and hosting students from countries around the world. Hartsburg students cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world and can handle adversity. Is Hartsbrook the right school for your teenager? For parents and caregivers of 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, there's a Discover Hartsbrook evening this Tuesday. Also this Tuesday, a half-day visiting day for students. Register at hartsbrook.org. The Hartsbrook School on a 55-acre campus on Bay Road in Hadley. This is Crime and Punishment with Attorney John Pucci, but we are going to stay for a moment with the previous conversation where John was here while we spoke to uh, Professor Salman Hamid, and I'd appreciate if you'd bring our listeners into the conversation that we were having during the break. John? Well, I just had this comment that uh, at at the moment, of course, and for a long time, actually, my entire life, the problem... Uh, in the Middle East with the Israeli and Arab conflict has been going on. It's been going on my entire life, and it seems intractable, intractable, and it comes and goes, but it's always there. It's always present. It's never been resolved. And we get to a really close, we're going to solve it. Clinton was there. Close. And then it disappeared. Close. But it, it reminds me that uh, there have been two other issues or really, really in, intense difficult conflicts in our lifetime as well that have been solved. One was in South Africa, where after apartheid had completely overrun the country, there was lots of violence, hatred, bias. It seemed completely intractable uh, until a savior literally came from prison named Nelson Mandela and was able to see past the, fa- the, the fear and the hatred to a future that where people could live together, not without biases, not without their prejudices, not without their memories, but without their violence. And that intractable problem was resolved with a small r. And the same thing happened in Northern Ireland. I mean, that violence went on, culminating in the Troubles, went on for centuries. The bias and hatred and suppre- uh, by the Irish as to the English and the English suppression in repression of, of the Irish, and it seemed intractable until it wasn't. And so it isn't that the biases and hatreds go away, but if the violence goes away, it can be the beginning, a, a start of a new history. Mm. Um, and so I, I have a hope that maybe from this terrible, terrible moment in, 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 in time that something can come out of it or it will come out of it somehow, some way, uh, like those totally intractable problems that could not possibly be solved and yet were. I have had that hope that somehow out of this conflagration, the horrifying terrorist attack, the thousands of innocent people killed, that the Israelis and I'm not sure about Hamas as a negotiating partner, but certainly uh, 
groups in the Middle East, both uh, NGOs, non-governmental actors, and governments could say, it is in our pure self-interest to stop the destruction. We still can hate Israel all we want. We can even be anti-Semites, but it's in our interest to stop the violence. And Israel can say, we can feel whatever we want, but it is in our own self-interest to end the war. And the only way to end the endless war is to allow for a Palestinian state. And I know everyone says the two-state solution is dead. It's only dead if we pronounce it dead. Here, here. I, I want to, uh, what you just said, Attorney Don, John Pucci, and what Professor Salman Hamid was talking about, this notion of understanding history and putting it in context, it's so important, and that's what's so chilling here, because um, the, the forbidding of even looking at critical race theory or slavery's uh, the, the fact that the racism we're experiencing today is a product of a history, the fact that books are being banned from children from reading to understand historical context, that's what, you, that's what you're talking about by let's look at Ireland. That's what you're talking about. Look, let's look at South Africa. There's things that we can learn from history. And that's what's so chilling. When, when we had that conversation during the break, uh, Salman Hamid said, yeah, but we're going in the opposite direction of that. That is really scary to me. It's scary, period. Um, there's no doubt about it. But at some point in time, what happened in South Africa and what happened in Ireland was terrifying, scary terrorist acts against innocent people throughout the society that, that, that seemed like it could never possibly end. There was no end in sight until there was. So Thank you for that reminder. I, I, I can only hope and dream uh, that while the biases and prejudices and hatreds can't stop, the the violence can and and at least create the possibility that are not our generation or our, even our children's generation but our grandchildren's generation can grow up not surrounded by the violence that can't be shed you know by the human consciousness living through it we're speaking with attorney john pucci and i think what i'd like to do is start afresh with the question of donald trump right after this more Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. 
You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Hello, this is Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner reminding you to reelect me on November 7. I will always remember that being a mayor isn't about the title. It's about the people I serve. You, the residents of Greenfield. I'm ready to continue leading us forward, achieving progress for our city. With your support, I'll carry on providing the leadership and vision that Greenfield needs and deserves. Vote for Roxanne on November 7. Paid for by committee to elect Roxanne Wiedegartner. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Attorney John Pucci. I'd like to ask about the civil fraud trial for Donald Trump and Trump's businesses that is ongoing in New York now and what you make of the testimony of the Trump sons and whether you think, I guess the question for you, John, is if you were Trump's lawyer, would you allow him to testify here? Well, the dilemma for Donald Trump, the dilemma for Donald Trump is that if he doesn't testify, then the judge, and remember it's a civil case, it's no jury, the judge can draw an adverse inference if he takes the fifth and refuses to testify, an adverse inference that none of his testimony would be favorable, it would be disfavorable to him, which essentially sinks his defense. There's no defense then if he's not going to get on the stand and say, I didn't know then there's really no defense. And if the judge says, I draw a negative inference from the Fifth Amendment that if you testified truthfully, you'd be saying, I did know, then the case is going to be over as to Donald Trump himself, period. Now, having said that, I will say that the son's testimony, as reported in the Times and the Wall Street Journal yesterday, Donald Trump Jr.'s testimony, that it was all in the accountant's hands, and I relied on them. I found, based on all my knowledge in dealing with accountants and businesses in criminal cases— that it was reasonably credible. I don't know what they have to prove he knew more uh, in specifics, but maybe we'll find out a little more today when he continues cross-examination. Well, John Pucci, doesn't the accountant rely on whatever the client gives the accountant? Yes, there's a reliance. It's a reliance on counsel defense, and the accountants have already testified with regards to what they relied on. So to the extent that they can tie Donald Trump Jr. to specific submissions that were false— Um, then they can undermine the reliance on counsel defense. Donald Trump has that big problem, and I'm going to guess that his financial statements include a statement that say, I've given all the information to my accountants for them to rely upon, and then they can go rely upon it. But I don't actually know that that's the case. It seems to me, John, that the issue is, were the accountants, given the instructions that Donald Trump's fixer testified to, which is, Reverse engineer this. The number I need in order to get the loan terms I want, I need to be worth $5 billion or $6 billion or $7 billion. Get to those numbers with my properties. Just reverse it and see what they have to be worth so that I can get to that number. If the Trumps were not involved with that, then it seems to me the attorney general's case falls apart. It may. <clears throat> it may. It depends on what evidence uh, actually t- ties knowledge to Donald Trump and his children uh, as to what was submitted, whether they knew there was false information being submitted. 
I'm confused here, guys. Isn't this just the damage portion? Like, he's already been determined to have committed fraud. It's yes. All of that stuff has already happened. Yes. So it's just a question of how much and whether he should continue doing business. Right? And whether it's personal, the disqualification of doing business is personal to him, or it can only be attributed to the organization itself, which could be stripped of its, uh, of its licenses to practice and have a business in New York. It's devastating Right, so the case the won't fall apart. It's just the... Right? Just the who of who's yeah. going to get tagged with it. If it's just the organization, which it already is, then in some ways the government has already proven its case. It can it can rest on its laurels, uh, putting aside the amount of, of fraud that the judge is going to actually find. John Pucci, I'd appreciate it if you'd go back. I think listeners might say, wait a second. There's a Fifth Amendment, and we all know anything you say or don't say can't be used against you. And yet we're here today saying if Donald Trump gets on the stand, and because he's concerned about how his testimony might be used uh, in his criminal cases, takes the Fifth Amendment, which is an absolute right to do, I hereby respectfully decline to answer the question on the basis of my rights guaranteed by the Fifth Amendment. You're telling us, you're telling our listeners, that the judge, and it's just a judge trial, no jury here under New York law, that the judge can say, because you used your fundamental constitutional right I can draw an adverse inference against you. That sounds all wrong, I well, think. So how does that work? Why does that work that way? It's been the law for time immemorial in America that the adverse inference can be drawn against somebody who's a party uh, who takes the Fifth Amendment. I mean, it's an exception to the rule that you're suggesting, uh, which only applies to actual testimony, the actual words that are spoken can be used against a person. It cannot be used against a person, um, but 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 silence can be used against them, and it can be an instruction to a jury if this were a jury trial, or the judge is entitled to make an adverse inference. That's just the state of the law. It is the state of the law. I understand that, but what I think listeners may want to know is why is that the state of the law? If you have an absolute constitutional right to remain silent. How can that utilization of the absolute constitutional right to remain silent be used against you uh, in a civil case where presumably it couldn't be in a criminal case? What's the difference? Well, what's shocking to me is that the ACLU has not been able to use that argument and change the law. It's been a complete failure of that part of our world, our legal world. And all I can say is you should talk to the local people who are in charge of the ACLU with that question because I don't actually know the answer to it. Wow. <laughs> so much just happened in the last 30 seconds. I... <laughs> well, it was bound to happen. I'm 70 years old now. It was bound to happen sooner or later, and here we are. Okay, but I agree for our listeners for clarification. I, I think what John said about what the law is, the ability of the judge to take an adverse inference uh, from the invocation of the Fifth Amendment right is longstanding law. Uh, it used to be, I first ran into it in a divorce case back when I did one of the two divorces I ever did a thousand years ago. But the issue in, a, in the case I was, does the husband's uh, refusal to testify on the basis of the Fifth Amendment right prove the wife's claim of adultery? Um, and, and that is a context in which it came up for many years in Massachusetts. I just, I just want to put in my two cents here because the beginning of that clause in the Constitution it says no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime. Mm -hmm. And then three, three commas later, it, it says uh, 
they have a privilege against self-incrimination. I, I think it's in that context that civilly, the Constitution doesn't guarantee that your uh, exercise of the right to remain silent means that uh, we can't draw an adverse inference. I, I think that's how it works. So let me drop in another little nugget here for consideration, which is there's been this whole issue floating around in the civil case, as well as the, the, the D.C., the big criminal case in federal court in D.C. about these gag orders. And so the judge in New York made a finding that Trump had violated the gag order once and fined him 5000 and violated it twice and fined him another 10000 In the course of those proceedings, the Donald Trump was uh, supposedly, as to the second uh, allegation, the second violation of the gag order, it was alleged or it was stated that Donald Trump made a statement on his um, social media account, which, which was an attack on the judge's law clerk. And Trump himself testified that wasn't what it meant. The words I said, I said, but it wasn't what it meant. And the same judge made a finding that he didn't believe him. So you've now got a judge who's found his organization fraud in a vast way, who specifically listened to testimony from Donald saying, I don't believe you as to something within the four corners of this very case. And now he's going to have to decide if, he, if Trump testifies that he has testifying truthfully. Boy, that seems like a, you know, a long shot for the defense in the case. At the risk of sounding like I'm defending Donald Trump, I would share that his, uh, trying to choose the right word here, his uh, criticisms of the judge as being biased against him is not something he's made up out of whole cloth. This judge really has made adverse rulings and does at this point seem predisposed to rule against Trump, based on what you've just said. But the, I think that the answer may be, you made this bed, Donald Trump, now you lie in it. Mm. Your thoughts about whether uh, Trump has some claim of it's no longer fair what's going on in New York? Well, all the judge's findings so far are in the four corners of the, the, of the lawsuit itself uh, within his, you know, within his ballpark, within his, um, uh, on the ball field of the actual litigation that he's required to make judgments about. So he's not saying anything outside of that that reflects a bias. He's actually making findings, specific findings, which he's required to do as a judge. I don't think you can attribute that to the sort of bias or prejudice that would disqualify him. What's Trump worried about in terms of testifying? What testimony that he could give would or could be used against him in other criminal, in other cases, for the criminal cases? It could be used against him in other cases. Now, one would look at the civil case and say, gee, the allegations of fraud in the civil case on the trial are totally different than the 1-6 uh, insurrection charges in Washington, D.C., totally different. But in a jury-waived case where there's just a judge, the cross-examination can go far afield. The judge is not going to worry about questions that may touch on the January 6th issues or the Mar-a-Lago issues anywhere near that would happen in a jury case where the, the judge would be instructing the, the jury, you cannot and should not, uh, in, he would be instructing the lawyers. I strike that question, disregarded, disregard None the question, disregard happen. the answer. That's not going to happen because a judge is presumed to be able to separate the wheat from right. the chaff. Right, so the judge is going to give much greater leeway to opposing counsel in, in this civil case to ask questions that might come to and touch on the other litigations 
um, than he would in front of a jury where he would say those were, you know, those were outside the bounds of this lawsuit. And I don't want them to pollute the jury's thinking about it. But I, as a judge, because I'm sitting by myself, I can segregate those biases and prejudices, quote unquote. I can do that. And, and, therefore and, and putting Trump aside, there isn't uh, with there's three lawyers in the studio. Uh, there isn't a client who's ever been who's ever lost in court uh, who didn't feel that the judge had something against them. Right. It just happens. I think that's mostly true. I think yeah. that's largely true. Sure. They might not speak like Trump. Well, certainly as to Trump. Well, want to give us a last 30 seconds on Donald Trump's future? Well, I think the January 6th case, which is scheduled for trial in uh, March, uh, remains the biggest problem he's going to have going forward. The judge there is very focused, very professional, very accomplished, and I think it's a looming problem for him. It's going to happen before the election, and I think it's a very powerful case for the government. John Pucci, thank you so very much. You did it, I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And I'm, uh, well... Um, I'm astonished that I woke up this morning and looked out and there were about three inches of snow. Everything is covered in snow. Uh, everything is white. Um, it was nice when it got to the point where the moon could shine through. It was a beautiful thing at about five in the morning and, uh, looking outside and seeing the moonlit, uh, snow was just beautiful, which made me think, oh, Brian Adams, as usual, is going to bring in somebody who really is going to be talking about timely stuff in the world of nature. And uh, have you, Brian? Have you come through, Brian? Uh, of course I've come through. But, you know, the three inches of snow, what it makes me think that I want to do is just sort of curl up in some uh, warmish kind of place, uh, maybe not under a, under some stumps or trees or in a crevice outside, How about but a cave? inside. How about a cave? And just sort of snooze away the winter. I'm just not a winter guy, and it's cold out there. Um, and it makes me think of my favorite, my favorite New England mammal, 
not the deer, because uh, they're on my uh, bad mammal list because they ate all my sweet potato vines. Which, not the human? Uh, with the, no, we're talking about wild New England mammal. Of course, you are my favorite, Buzz, <laughs> New England mammal. <laughs> but next to you and Dan, Bill just left. Oh, and Bill too. Uh, my, my favorite New England mammal is the black bear. It is an unbelievably cool critter that a lot of us are familiar here in New England. And here to talk about black bears is Dave Waddles. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Great to be on with you. Uh, Dave is the black bear and fur bear project leader for Massachusetts Wildlife, uh, Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. What a cool title. You know, I'm the black bear and fur bear guy. I mean, how many kids want to want to and, be and you? Before you actually have a conversation with Dave, I just want to point out that Todd Olenek, who's the supervisor for this district in which we're sitting right now of Mass Wildlife. He said, Dave is the best bear and fur guy in the state. And we got him on the radio today to talk about black bears. So let's go right into what do black bears do in the winter, Dave? How do they, how do they make it through our cold New England winters, particularly up in the hill towns there? Yeah, black bears actually don't have any trouble dealing with the cold of winter. It's the lack of food that they have in winter that uh, causes them problems. And so that's why they hibernate. It's really a mechanism to cope with the lack of uh, natural foods for them. Um, that's because 99% of their diet is vegetation plant-based. Um, and so in the winter, there's just not much food for them. So they go to the den and basically sleep off that time when there's not a lot of food. We talk about the den. What, what does that mean? What kind of dens are out there for bears? It really tends to be pretty something pretty surprising to people. It can be absolutely anything. Um, so some will literally just scrape together some leaves and pine needles on the ground and build a big bird's nest on the ground that is completely wide open and exposed to the elements and just sleep away the winter there. Others will go into a brush pile or thick briars um, under a hollow log, uh, in a hollow tree, in a rock crevice, under a... Um, in a burrow in the ground. It can be really almost anything, and including using uh, human structures. Well, human structures like my house? We had one that was denned under the an old, probably 1970s truck cap um, out someone's backyard uh, last winter, and she curled up in there and gave birth to her newborn cubs, right, about a uh, hundred yards behind someone's house last oh, winter. Oh my goodness, that's that is so cool. Um, Dave, Black bears are true hibernators, right? I mean, they go, they do this deep sleep, but it's not like the technical definition of hibernation. They, they actually don't. They are not true hibernators. They basically are just taking a nap, um, and so they can wake up, um, you know, pretty much at any time. And, and some bears actually don't hibernate. Um, we see that every winter now. Um, particularly in suburban areas where some bears remain active or semi-active all winter, where they'll go, they'll take a nap for a little while, then they'll get up and they'll go to bird feeders. Um, basically, bird feeders provide a reliable source of food all winter that kind of precludes their need to hibernate. Um, so they're just kind of taking a snooze. Um, the females give birth, the pregnant females give birth in the den, and so then they're up and they're nursing every few hours to take care of the cubs for the, the remaining eight weeks of the period that they're in the den. Um, and if you make a lot of noise or, uh, you know, disturbance around, a bear can wake up and just 
like a snap of the fingers and, and take off and get out of there. So they're they're actually not true hibernators. So true hibernators, but, correct me if I'm wrong, are woodchucks, I think some species of bats and and some um, jumping mice. Is that right? That's yep. Yeah, yep. and, and and chipmunks and those those animals really go through like a very very deep uh, reduction in their metabolism. Their metabolic rates do decline in the den, um, but those animals actually take a long time to to warm back up and to 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 ramp back up towards activity, and they stay inactive all winter. Bears aren't like that. So bears are pretty quick waker uppers. So be yeah. be, be forewarned, listeners. Don't try to wake up a bear because you will, um, Dave. Population of black bears in Massachusetts. What is it, and how do you know what it is? It, it's actually difficult to know the exact number of bears in the state. We we estimate that there's around four to five thousand bears uh, oh. in the state. Um, and and we conduct we've had for a very long time an ongoing research project where we trap and then collar and monitor female black bears in the state. And it's through that that we get information on their survival, causes of mortality, uh, cub production, cub survival. Um, so every winter, you know, you were saying you, you don't like winter. Winter is a great time of year for me. It's when I get to go out in the field and visit the, those collared females in the den. We, we immobilize or tranquilize the female, uh, bring her out, check her condition, replace her collar if needed, uh, and see how many cubs she, she's given birth to that winter or how many cubs she gave birth to the previous winter um, survived and remained with her again this that winter. So uh, it's, it's how we get those pieces of information that allow us to track the, the, the growth of the population. And really it's that adult female survival which determines whether our population is increasing as it is, um, stable or declining. So Dave Waddles of Mass uh, Fisheries and Wildlife, I, I, I want to go back to where I started, which is we have three inches of snow in the hill towns uh, that I woke up to this morning. Are bears hibernating now? They're just starting to. Um, and the time when bears enter dens can be pretty variable, with the exception of pregnant females. Uh, females that are going to give birth in the den this winter, which is approximately half of our females every year, um, pretty much enter clock the den like clockwork right around November 1st. Um, bears do delayed implantation, which means the, the egg is fertilized during the, the mating season in, in June, which peaks in June. Uh, it begins development, but then the development pauses. And it's around this time of year where their physiology changes, um, the egg implants in the uterine wall, the pregnancy begins to develop, and, you know, their body tells them it's time to go to the den. Um, all other bears can basically den, so those females who have one-year-old cubs with them, males, it could be before now, if maybe if, if food isn't very prevalent, it could be another month from now, two months from now, if they still have access to food, so it can be highly variable. Uh, the reason why I ask is because I think a lot of listeners are like me. We know not to feed bears and other wildlife, but we do love to feed our birds. And some say, some naturalists say don't feed birds, but we love bird TV, looking out the window and watching the different birds that come to the feeder. When is it safe for us to put bird seed out for our birds and not be worried about bears coming? Yeah, I mean, as, as the, the biologist responsible for both bears and coyotes, you know, my response to that is going to be never. Um, you know, really, bird feeders are the single number one driver of human-wildlife conflict. It trains bears, it trains coyotes and other wildlife to come 
into our yards, up onto our decks to try to find food. That leads to other problems with those animals. Um, so, you know, there's really not a great time. And some, as I said before, some of our bears remain active every single year because of bird feeders providing that, you know, throughout the winter. Um, so certainly if you put a bird feeder out in the winter and a bear comes around, take it in and don't put it back up. But generally speaking, it's kind of the, the deep winter months. Um, so sometime maybe after Christmas, where at that point, most of our bears have entered the den. Um, and then, you know, kind of through February, pretty much um, by the end of February, some of our bears are already starting to emerge from the den and, and all of them will be out by late March to early April. So if you're going to feed the birds, January, February, are the safest months to make sure there's no bear uh, human or bear bird human <laughs> conflict. Let's get back to this um, this studying of bears. So to get population estimates, you actually trap a bear, put a collar, a radio tag, GPS collaring uh, collar on them. Tell us about that. What is the process like of actually trapping a bear? How do you do that? So every spring, our regional biologists, um, so in our, our western, our Connecticut, our, our Connecticut Valley, our central and northeast districts, um, are putting out barrel traps. So these are two-and-a-half 55-gallon drums welded together that have a, a door that drops down over the end of them. There's a bait bag with, with donuts and some other attractants. Oh, well, hold on. Back Seriously? <laughs> donuts? Bear, bears will eat anything. Oh, my God. have a... A liking for donuts, we use fryolator grease because it smells, um, and and that'll attract them into there. So even a you know four to five hundred pound bear will squeeze himself into that trap, um, and we can then safely uh, tranquilize them, immobilize them. So that's what happened to me last year for two weeks. I was <laughs> I was trapped in these barrels, and I thought, okay, sorry, uh, go on. So so the, the the bears go in the barrels with the donuts, and then what? So they grab that uh, when they grab that bait bag at the end. It kind of pulls the uh, trigger out from under the door. It slides down. They're trapped in there. We can then use a tranquilizer uh, and a, a syringe on the end of a pole to to apply the tranquilizer. They go to sleep in the trap. We pull them out, and then we can assess them and work them up. And so, all the males get ear tags. Well, all the bears get ear tags, so we can identify them their capture history, if they're um, killed at some later date or what have you, we, we know how long that, that animal survived. And then the females get collars that allow us to track them from that point forward. That is, that is so cool. So the radio tags, um, how, how does that work? I mean, how do you know uh, they, they don't work for miles and miles, do they? You have to be in, in a pretty close proximity for the, for the radio thing to pick up. I'm, I'm butchering my sentences Signal here. Signal. Here. Thank you, Buzz. Uh, is, that, is that true? How does that work? Yes. And so we, we have two types of collars. One is a conventional radio collar that is just putting out a pulsing, beeping signal uh, that has a specific frequency. We can, with a receiver, tune into that frequency. And then when you're in the vicinity, you'll pick up that beep. And you use a specific type of antenna that allows you, when you're pointing in the direction that the bear is, the signal is going to be stronger. And so you can, over time, narrow in on the direction the bear is. And, you know, that's how we track them to their dens in the winter or figure out where they are at other times of year. Um, the other half of our collars, which are also equipped with that type of radio, have a GPS unit on them. So those GPS units take a location attempt every 45 minutes. So we're getting really fine-scale, detailed information as to, you know, where these bears, the different hab natural habitat types they're using, 
how often they're coming to backyards and around homes, you know, how closely they're living in our cities and towns, um, and, and getting really detailed information on their, their movements and habitat use. That is so cool. So the GPS is constantly feeding data to you that you can use in terms of assessing uh, where bears are moving and population and all that stuff. Really interesting. It's so amazing that technology, sophisticated technology, can so help us understand the, the simple things that nature provides, like movement of bears in this region. I just love this conversation. We're talking with Dave Waddle, Brian Adams, guest. Um, he is from the Massachusetts Fisheries and Wildlife. We're going to continue this conversation, this fascinating conversation with this fur-bearing expert, Dave Waddles. We'll be right back. It was all down there, and it was all in the papers. This is supposed to be for all the people in the springtime who like to find a picnic. This is called it picnic never happened. It's called Talking Bear Mountain Picnic Massacre Blues. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's shop Friday? Kohl's Building Supply? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Kohl's Building Supply in North Amherst provides the quality materials for any home improvement project. Visit the Kitchen Design Showroom, the Benjamin Moore Paint Store, or their Flooring Showroom. You'll find a caring team with the knowledge and expertise to answer all your questions. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. at whmp.com. Every child has a spark that's waiting to be ignited, that deserves to be ignited. At the Bement School, we know each student's story. We know them as individuals. Kids at Bement understand that academic success is an important part of who they are. Not the only part, but an important part. Their teachers guide them on that quest, individually and as a group, fostering a sense of responsibility for learning. The Bement School serves students in kindergarten through ninth grade. It's a close-knit community of students from Western Mass, from other parts of the country, and other parts of the world. Forming bonds with students whose households and cultures are different gives them a broad perspective on the world, even at this young age. As much as academic success is important at Bement, so too is how students learn to live Bement's core values, compassion, integrity, resilience, and respect at school and in their communities. Take a closer look at Bement. Contact me, Kim Lachlan, Director of Admission, or visit our website, bement.org. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart. Every year, more than 4 million pets enter shelters here in the United States. My friends at American Humane have been helping animals since 1877. The goal is to ensure that pets have a safe shelter, especially during natural disasters. Adopting a shelter pet allows shelters to help more animals awaiting care. Please consider adopting today and take some time to learn more about American Humane's other work at AmericanHumane.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're back with Brian Adams and his guest. Dave Waddles from Mass Fisheries and Wildlife. And we're talking about all things bear, because we're bear country uh, here. Um, Dave, during the break, we were talking about um, bears denning up in the, in the winter. Do they come back every year to the same uh, den? Do they sort of stick around in the same area? How does that work? 
Yeah, they do stick around in the same area. So bears have home what we call home ranges, or that's their territory where they live. And that home range tends to be consistent year after year, you know, slight changes, but they basically use the same area. And that's because they, they know where to find food there. They know how to, you know, navigate and get around there, how to avoid the major roads and those kind of things. Um, so that they tend to use the same ter- territories, but they can shift over time as well. In terms of the dens, they quite often are finding a new den every year. Um, we certainly do have examples of where they'll go back. You know, if they've got a particularly good den, like a really nice hollow tree or a den like that, they will sometimes reuse those. But more often than not, it's they're choosing a different den every single year. Is there a memorable encounter with a bear that you could tell us about? Something that, you know, if you're at a cocktail party or you're... You know, people say, oh, you're the bear guy. Tell me something that happened. Uh, tell, us, tell us one of those things that happened. I think it, it, it's, you know, some of the, the places that would shock people where, where bears den. You know, we've had, you know, right in the valley there, just um, north of Northampton um, at the Interstate 91 exit for Hatfield. In the cloverleaf there, between the off-ramp, the overpass in the highway, there's just a small cluster of little junipers. And one of our young bears denned right in the middle of that for the entire winter within, you know, feet of Interstate 91 and all the vehicles passing by. Um, we had a bear that denned in the center median of Route 2 um, <laughs> with four, two, two lanes of traffic going each way. And for to handle her one year when she had newborn cubs, we had to get the state police, DOT, to shut down Route 2 while we quickly immobilized her and moved her and, and the cubs out of that den and, and made them another den elsewhere. So it's kind of amazing some of the places where they'll den. But those places, basically, they're, they're safe for them because basically no people ever ever venture there. So they're actually quite secure dens despite their proximity to, to some of those major roadways. That is so, so interesting. Uh, let's get back to uh, bears mating. So bears aren't, uh, aren't um, social animals, right? They don't stick together, um, maybe mom with her cubs for a while. How does a male bear find a female bear to mate in the spring, right? Is that what you said? Yeah, the, the mating season can go basically any time from around April into August, but it kind of it peaks in June. And at that time of year, the males, typically we don't put co- tracking collars on the males, but um, when I was at UMass, we did put some GPS collars on some very large males um, and saw their movements during the mating season. And it is enormous. They cover enormous areas. Uh, so basically, they greatly enlarge their home ranges um, at that time of year where they're just moving all over the place. And basically, they're they're trying to sniff out and smell females um, that their territory now overlaps with, determine if they're coming into estrus, or which means they're they're ready to mate, um, and, and really mating with as many as they can, those dominant males uh, during that time. So that's the only association that males have with females. It's just that quick during the mating season. And otherwise, like you said, yes, they're solitary. This is a pretty cool gig that you have, right? I mean, you are the the black bear and fur bear project leader, sort of every kid's uh, dream, it seems like. How did you get this job? It, it's taken a long time. Um, you know, I grew up uh, spending a lot of time in the outdoors with my family and so always had an interest in, in nature and did a lot of backpacking um, when I was in college. Uh, and then eventually I ended up going to graduate school at UMass. Yeah, um, UMass. At UMass. Yep, UMass Amherst, and spent a lot of time in the Valley and in Western Mass. 
Um, and my project was actually putting GPS collars on moose in the state. So we went out and located moose, put these same types of tracking collars on them uh, to learn about their habitat use, their movement. Um, and eventually, while I was there, we started working with Mass Wildlife to put the GPS collars on bears. They already had collared with conventional collars. Um, so started working with bears at that point, and then eventually when the state bear biologist left, I was able to move into that position. So kind of a fortunate uh, fortunate path that gave me a, a lot of opportunities. Sounds like a very, very cool job, and thank you for doing the work that you do. You, do, you deal with not just bears, right, but you're the fur bearer guy too. What are other fur bearer, fur bearers that you uh, deal with? Yeah, so there are 14 species that are we call our fur bearers, and so that's basically most of our mammals with the exception of deer and moose. Um, so it's your, your coyotes, bobcats, fox, weasels, beavers, muskrats, so raccoons, skunks, etc. So lots of, of our our carnivore species as well as beaver and muskrat, so have uh, have responsibility for all those animals as well. It's so interesting. I can't imagine radio tagging a skunk. Um, that would be a, a different kind of kind of job there. Um, Dave, you talked about the black bear population increasing. Uh, that's a is that that's a good thing, right? Yeah, the, the increase in the population that we are still experiencing is kind of the, the long-term recovery of our bear population following basically European colonization. Bears once lived throughout Massachusetts, but as basically we cut down the forest and turned it into farm fields, bears were, our agency didn't exist, and bears were hunted at all times a year. They were also seen as a pest species at the time because of their impacts on agriculture. And so basically they were hunted nearly to extinction in the state. And in the population we have now is, is a result of the recovering growth of a small remnant population in the northern Berkshires that has just slowly over time expanded through the areas west of the Connecticut River, eventually crossed the river and is now pushing out to the 495 corridor where we've had multiple reports of bears in southeast Mass this year um, and bears east of 495. So the the majority of the population is west of the river here in the hill towns in the Berkshires and the Connecticut River Valley. Is that true? That's still our highest density. Um, we, we have bears. Basically, our established range goes out to around Worcester and uh, the I-190 corridor. Um, goes a little bit further to the east, north of Route 2. Um, and the, the bear density in Worcester County is increasing very rapidly. You know, we're at the point there where in the past there may be one or two females that are producing cubs every other year to the point where, you know, now there's a lot higher, much higher densities. And so the population is really starting to basically follow the same trend it did previously in Western Mass, but, you know, starting to pick up very, very rapidly. When does bear hunting season uh, start and uh, how long is that season? There's there's three parts of it. Um, the first is just after Labor Day for three weeks. Um, actually, next Monday is the start of the second portion for another three weeks. And then there's a two-week season that overlaps with the, the deer shotgun hunting season in um, early December. Uh, Dave Waddles, this is Bill Newman. I'd be interested to know whether there are restrictions on what kind of guns can be used to hunt bears. And what size bear. Yep. And, and there certainly are. So there, you know, and basically there, it's just making sure that you have, you're using something that is capable of, of taking down an animal like a bear. Um, but there are restrictions on, you know, 
different things so that, you know, there was a ballot referendum that made the use of bait illegal or the use of hounds illegal for hunting bears. So it really is going out into the woods and encountering a bear for, for hunt to, to, to hunt it. So it's really quite a, a difficult thing is while we have lots of bears out there, it's not like the, the number of deer we have. So it's, it's not very you know easy for a hunter to go out and get a bear. We've been talking with Dave Waddles. Dave is the Black Bear and Fur Bear Project Leader for the state of Massachusetts. Uh, and it's been such an interesting conversation. It has been. And I really want to, I'm feeling terrible for the bears that are being hunted. I know. So I'd, I like, to, I'd like to know, uh, do the cubs stay with their uh, moms for a while? Uh, are hunters, could, could they run into more than one bear or a bear family? Make me feel a little better about this, please, Dave. Yeah, and by the time of the year where we are hunting seasons take place, those those cubs are able to take care of themselves. So they're weaned. Yes, they would den with their mother that that winter, but they they do survive, and we don't have have issues of of cubs being orphaned for there. And you know, in terms of the, the impacts of our hunting season, despite having a hunting season, our population is continuing to grow and thrive, and and that's part of the reason that we do the research we do is to ensure that you know the hunting season isn't having any negative impact on the population. But it's hunting is also our only mechanism of regulating the population and, and controlling it at levels that where bears aren't going to be become a nuisance species because they're causing so much conflict for people. And bears have no natural predators other than human beings. Again, we've been talking with Dave Waddles. He's the Black Bear and Fur Bear Project Leader for Massachusetts Wildlife. Dave, thank you so much for being on the show, show and, and uh, keep those bears, that bear population increasing because they are my favorite mammal. Now, my favorite mammals are the ones that Brian Adams brings on our show. Favorite wild mammal. How about that? Oh, okay. Wild mammals. Okay. Dave Waddles, thank you so much. We're going to be back, and we're going to be talking our pleasure. We'll be talking music uh, with Glenn Siegel and guest right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This week, state officials announced the first-ever limit on the number of families that could be provided emergency shelter, citing budget constraints. Governor Maury Healy announced a new cap of 7,500 families that can be admitted into the program at a time, as well as the start of a waitlist system. State officials expect to reach that cap by the end of the week. The reality we are facing now is this. We do not have enough space, service providers, or funds to safely expand beyond 7,500 families. On Wednesday, a Boston judge denied a motion that would have stopped the state agency from implementing this cap on services. A public forum will be held tonight to discuss the options for the Pioneer Valley Regional School District's facilities. The district is looking at options for either renovating existing buildings or building new ones. The forum will be held at 5.30 p.m. at Pioneer. Family night at GCC is tonight from 5 to 8 p.m. in the college's core lobby and will feature family activities as well as information about the new Mass Reconnect program. Mass Reconnect is a state-funded program that allows eligible Massachusetts residents to attend community college for free. A special town meeting has been called for Colerain on November 14th at 7 p.m. in the Colerain Elementary School. Residents will vote on the transfer of $50,000 from Highway Department wages to a new account for Highway Department contracted services for snow and ice removal. 
Mostly sunny today, a little bit warmer than yesterday with a high of 44 to 48. Light breeze out of the west-southwest. Mostly clear tonight. Evening temperatures in the 30s and 40s. An overnight low of 22 to 28. It's a sun cloud mix tomorrow. Warming trend continues with a high of 52 to 56. We'll be near 60 and dry over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The person you're sleeping with, you know things about them that maybe you shouldn't know. Like, they got up last night at 3 and went down to the kitchen. How do you know? You have one of those mattresses that, well, let's just say you know things you really don't need to know. Sleep on a Theralux mattress from Talon Furniture. Wait, Theralux? What happened? All Talon Furniture ever talks about is therapeutic mattresses. Well. Theralux is simply Therapeutic's high-end mattress. What makes it high-end? It's a cooling mattress. If you're not sure what cooling mattresses are, we'll show you. A Theralux mattress has a 20-year warranty and a really high coil count, which means if the person you're sleeping with is tossing and turning or gets up at 3 a.m., you won't even know. And that's the way a good night's sleep ought to go, right? Therapeutic, and now Theralux. Come to Talon Furniture, just down the hill from Amherst College. Just don't come at 3 a.m. We'll be sound asleep. When you're going through a tough time and want to talk with someone, talk with an experienced mental health care provider at ServiceNet. Talk therapy, medication management, and other treatment options. ServiceNet therapists and our psychiatry team work together to help you feel better. Having services all in one place can make a world of difference. At ServiceNet, we have your back. Call ServiceNet at 584-6855. The care you need is right here, all in one place, at ServiceNet. Our school communities thrive when they address students, families, and educators' well-being. That's why the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education offers schools and districts the tools to meet these needs through our Office of Student and Family Supports. Caring for each other, growing together, Visit doe.mass.edu slash growing together. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. That is the sound of, well... All that jazz, and who better to uh, introduce us to uh, this incredibly talented clarinetist and educator, Daryl Harper, than you, Glenn Siegel. Thank you so much for inviting Daryl to join us today. Thank you, Buzz, and uh, it's great to be here. Our guest, as mentioned, is clarinetist and educator Daryl Harper, who is the John William Ward Professor of Music and Chair of the Music Department at Amherst College. Daryl Harper, welcome to All That Jazz. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, you have an extensive resume as uh, both a performer and composer with your own groups and with some very high-powered luminaries in the jazz world. Uh, Before diving into your own projects, let's talk a bit about the two years you spent with violinist and NEA jazz master Regina Carter. How did that relationship develop? Sure. Um, That was uh, a real... Uh, a nice connection that actually relates back to 
the time, my time in the Valley, I first came to the Valley as a college student at Amherst College. And uh, one of the things I uh, took advantage of was the Jazz in July program. At that time, uh, on the faculty was uh, Billy Taylor, uh, Youssef Latif, uh, Max Roach. And one of the students, my fellow students there, was Alvester Garnett, a uh, great drummer who uh, toured with uh, Betty Carter and Abby Lincoln and Regina Carter eventually. And um, so when Regina was looking for a, a clarinet player, uh, he was one of the reasons that my name came up. And then also the bassist, uh, her bassist, Matthew Parrish, and I were really close colleagues. So uh, that was another connection. And um, yeah, I got to kind of play for Regina and um, see how the fit was, and uh, and that really worked out. I, I just want to point out for, for our listeners who might not be jazz freaks, uh, every one of the names uh, that Daryl just uh, mentioned are giants in their own right, and, and so you were really exposed to some very serious talent. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, really an amazing opportunity, and uh, even to this day, I, I wonder at um, how all of these uh, amazing uh, uh, artists and musicians came together uh, in this area uh, uh, and then also had this, this really global influence at the same time. So it's, it's something really special about, uh, uh, about the Valley that I love. Yeah, and you got to tour the world with Regina, right? You got to yeah, all over the, the Caribbean, yeah, Europe, yeah, et yeah, yeah, all over. Yeah, beautiful. Len, you, you've pointed this out so many times. I, I've always been fascinated, like the Paris of the 20s, when, when you had like uh, these just major artists and authors and uh, musicians uh, just gathering there. It's like this happenstance. Yeah. That's what it's like here in the Valley with respect to jazz. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah definitely. This incredible definitely. collection of yeah. talent. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It really is true, uh, both historically, uh, or at least from the 1970s onward, um, and then again today, I mean, I think there's another resurgence of mm -hmm. uh, folks moving out of cities, out of New York especially, moving up to the Valley for quality of life issues, and uh, um, so it makes for a very rich jazz environment, yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, one other uh, long-term relationship that's ongoing for you that I wanted to touch on was uh, with pianist and MacArthur fellow Jason Moran, Tell us how you met, met Jason Moran and the nature of your collaboration. Sure. Uh, the first time I met Jason, he was playing with uh, the amazing uh, clarinetist uh, Don Byron, um, and they were giving a concert in Scullers. Um, and uh, it was a trio concert, so it was very intimate, and, um, and I... You know, I heard Jason play in that context and was really impressed. I went up afterwards and introduced myself, and I knew Don. Um, so, uh, so that was the first time. And then uh, it was kind of a similar story through networks, common networks and overlapping networks. Um, and even my wife uh, and Jason were on a residency together at the American Academy in Rome. And it turned out Jason was looking for a clarinetist for a new project at the time that he was developing. And, um, and then it kind of worked the same way where um, when, when my name came up for Jason, he, 
you know, asked around and then he tried me out and, um, and it, it seemed like a good fit. So, uh, yeah, that was, that started back in 2018 and, and we're still playing together. Uh, and it's an amazing project. I love it. Yeah. So just to uh, clarify, that project is based on the music of James Reese Europe. James Reese Europe. And uh, right. his Harlem Hellfighters Harlem project. Harlem Hellfighters, right. Uh, tell us a little bit about who he was sure, sure. and how Jason has adapted that music, which is from the 1910s yeah, or, yeah, or even yeah. earlier. Yeah, 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 yeah. So James Reese Europe was one of the first people to introduce the the then nascent sound of jazz it was really just forming and he was in the middle of all of it, all of the you know the new kind of dance rhythms that are being mixed with the marching band music and that kind of thing and um, he brought a, a a large contingent of musicians uh, over to Europe um, and uh, and did some touring, so so the ears of European listeners were introduced to this music uh, through him uh, in large part, and that and and several other things that he did. He was a World War One veteran. Uh, he served in the army. Uh, that's where the band got its nickname, Harlem Hellfighters. And um, uh, Jason was introduced to the music through one of his mentors, Randy Weston and uh, was so taken by it. What's remarkable about this music is it really hasn't been performed much. So 100 years ago, James Reese Europe made one of the earliest jazz recordings, and then the music kind of, it gets marginalized, really. And, um, and, and Jason wanted to pay tribute to Europe, and he also wanted this music to be available and accessible to all of us. Uh, so he, he embarked on this really ambitious and really beautiful project to put it out to the public. So Professor uh, Daryl Harper, that, that was just so beautiful to listen to for me. Glenn introduced you as an educator and a clarinetist. And so I have a question, maybe it's a dumb question, yeah. probably is, but when you self-identify, are you an educator? which we just heard mm -hmm. so beautifully displayed, or are you a musician? Yeah, it's, um, it's never an either or for me. Yeah, it's, um, I, I really feel uh, them all kind of integrated. And I would say the same about someone like Jason Moran. Um, and if, if anyone's ever heard him uh, speak uh, before an audience, and even when we do this show, we're performing and we're, you know, we're giving everything we we have um, uh, to the performance, uh, but Jason will take the microphone and he'll speak and he'll speak about James Reese Europe and he'll speak about you know all the components of the project and he and and it's the same thing. It's it's really about sharing uh, this information and sharing this these experiences with uh, with audiences and with with our our various communities that. You know, it, it's the same activity. I think. What, a, what a great thing to think about during a break. So once again, Glenn Siegel, oh, you always manage to bring us such great uh, guests and such great performing artists. It's just such a pleasure. We're here with Professor Daryl Harper, a great musician and a great educator. We'll be right back.
Hashtag you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. I know, I know. I always say, why buy it when you can rent it? But maybe you do need to own a tile saw. Maybe a few folding tables out in the garage isn't a bad idea. Come to the auction today at TJ's Rental in Hadley. Tools and tents, tables and chairs, china, cotton candy, and popcorn machines. Haven't you always wanted to own a dunk tank? How about a bounce house? Tons of bargains. Huge auction today at TJ's Rental, Route 9 in Hadley. Preview beginning at 8. For complete contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at WHMP.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And it is Thursday. It's time for all that jazz. Glenn Siegel, you've got a special guest today. Yes, we have Daryl Harper in the studios who teaches at Amherst College, a great uh, clarinetist and educator and composer. Um, Daryl, I saw your octet project at the Drake in Amherst some months ago, Mm -hmm. um, and it was a celebration of your recording called Chambermaid. Tell us about that recording and the ensemble you presented. Sure. Um, that recording had to do with a, a really long-standing uh, investigation that I've been involved with, uh, where where I'm thinking about uh, chamber music as uh, kind of an entity, and thinking about jazz as an entity, thinking about uh, what they have in common, where they overlap, where they don't, and uh, just doing all of these experiments to mix them together. And this is a tradition that goes all the way back to the 50s and and has kind of a long list of uh, wonderful musicians who do it. So I'm, I'm trying to put myself in conversation with them, uh, people again like Max Roach, people like Gunther Schuller, people uh, like... Um, uh, uh, I'm thinking of... Um, uh, the modern jazz quartet, you know, the, those those artists and uh, working across that boundary. Yep. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. That was a that was a great evening of music. Um, so you have a BA in music from Amherst College, a master's in jazz studies from Rutgers University, and a doctorate in jazz studies from New, the New England Conservatory in Boston. 
So ha- tell us about your work as an academic and how it complements your work as an artist. Sure. Um, I, I think one of the things that's really nice um, for for me and, and uh, really a privilege of the, the way that I work, at least, is that um, bringing the experience of uh, performing music and music making uh, to students is, is something that, that I find really fulfilling and something I hope that they also find fulfilling. Uh, so there's definitely that overlap. Um, I, I love teaching because um, the way that my teachers uh, impacted my life, I had one teacher in particular I'm thinking of, his name was Anthony Hurdle. I studied with him in Philadelphia. And he was the one who turned me on to jazz. And he did this for me one day. Um, we were playing a school Christmas concert, you know, Christmas carols in the mall, that kind of thing. And, um, and afterwards, we were done and vacation started. And he said, well, do you want to come with me because I'm going to this jazz club? And we went to this club called Slim Cooper's. And he brought me into Slim Cooper's. And I had no business being there because I was 16 years old. And it was a bar. But he wasn't bringing, in, bringing me there to do anything illicit. He wanted me to, to experience this session. And I saw those musicians on that stage, uh, Tyrone Brown, who uh, was Max Roach's bass player, Al Jackson on drums, Eddie Green on piano, and uh, an alto saxophonist in Philadelphia named Tony Williams. And they just lifted the room up, and people were standing up in their chairs and they were cheering and everybody, the joy in the room, I said, I, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. And, and he stayed with me for two years and uh, really uh, mentored me closely to help bring me into this world. And I am forever indebted to him for that, but that was something I wanted to pass on to other students. Daryl, I'd like to ask you a question about Mentorship, because you've just mentioned some of yours. You, you have your bachelor's, as you mentioned, of music from Amherst and your master's degree in music from Rutgers and your doctorate in music and jazz, uh, in jazz studies from the New England Conservatory. You teach a course at Amherst on jazz improvisation and the music experience, and you say it's an interdisciplinary approach to music to music and to the material, which draws on, and I'm quoting now, evolutionary biology, neuroscience, literary theory, theory, music, and theater. Could you square that circle for me? How do you put all that together, and what's the relationship? Sure. Um, uh, That is a course called Thinking Through Improvisation, and uh, what we do in that course, it's for for first-year students, as soon as they come in for their first semester, and uh, we're introducing the students to improvisation as uh, kind of a life skill. So it's not only something that's relevant for jazz musicians, but it's relevant for all of us. And the evolutionary biology part has to do with, well, why did it come into being for human beings? What, what is it about improvisation that 
once it got inserted, it became an advantage for us. And we're improvising right now in this conversation. We're using the same skills that jazz musicians do because none of the, what we're saying is scripted. How are we doing? C plus, B minus? No, no, no. We're, we're, this is our thing for human beings. We do this. We do it really well, and it's a really important thing. So we, we look across a variety of domains, including music, to see how it's useful and why it's important. And then what I hope students leave with is, yeah, improvisation is something that I should really pay attention to. What do we give up when we're not improvising? When we choose to put it aside, what do we get from it when we use it? Those are all uh, questions that the students kind of uh, wrestle with and, and then they go on to their other studies and, and I hope that they keep thinking about improvisation. Great. Um, so you grew up in Philadelphia, as you mentioned, a, a city with a very rich jazz tradition, yeah. uh, and you mentioned your, your mentor. Um, tell us about the Philly jazz scene more broadly sure. and how it impacted your jazz sure. upbringing. Sure. Um, very, very rich jazz tradition. Um, uh, you know, more recent people uh, who who are in the public eye now, Christian McBride, who um, I, I kind of just miss crossing with. I had just left when he started. Um, one of the things that comes to mind is community uh, radio like this. That was huge in Philadelphia. There was a 24-hour jazz station that had a big influence on me. There was a community music school called Settlement Music School where I studied piano and I and I studied jazz and I studied clarinet and all of those things. So uh, it was it was an amazing experience that that is you know kind of baked into to me. Yeah. I used to frequent Grendel's Lair. You remember Grendel's Lair? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So Professor Daryl Harper, if I might. Did you start with an interest in jazz, or did you start with classical or rock and roll? What was the genesis for you of, I, your, of, of love of music? Yeah, I, uh, my mother um, was kind of a, uh, she wanted, always wanted to play music, and she never had the opportunity. So she positioned me with these community music schools and the public school music programs and everything to be able to study. And uh, I, I loved, when I was young, all kinds of genres. Uh, and as I said, it was Tony Hurdle who introduced me to jazz. So uh, it really uh, came later. I was a teenager by the time I started really, really getting heavily into jazz. Um, but, uh, you know, Stevie Wonder, um, you know, R&B, um, things that were on the radio, classical and, you know, everything was was good. Mm -hmm. Can I audit your course? <laughs> Please do. <laughs> yeah, and Daryl, one of Daryl's courses involves bringing students to live music performances, and he's been to, he and his students have been to jazz shares more than once. Um, so we're winding down here with Daryl Harper. I just wanted to ask you briefly about new projects, next projects mm -hmm. uh, in sure. your own career. I, uh, I'm involved with a composer's collaborative. We're writing for big band um, uh, out in Cambridge, and it's called the New England Jazz Collaborative. Uh, still working with Jason. We'll be playing Carnegie Hall in March, and we'll be playing uh, the Big Ears Jazz Festival in Knoxville. You'll be playing Georgia. Carnegie Hall in March? Yep. And you waited to the last 30 seconds to tell us <laughs> that? 
we're, we're getting you a PR guy. We're, I want to know what your question. I'm we'll more get you a PR guy. with the Big Ears Festival, which is the premier uh, creative music festival in uh, Knoxville. Yeah, yeah. So. And, in, and, in, and in fact, Daryl Harper is, uh, just Google Daryl Harper and you'll see how accomplished he is. Glenn Siegel, once again, thank you so much. You've done it again. Yeah. Listeners, thank you for joining us on Talk to Talk. Want to make a difference in a big way? Nearly 200 children in Hampshire County are on a waiting list to be matched with adult mentors called BIGS. Children who are matched with mentors through Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County do better in school, report higher self-confidence, and have better relationships with peers. Start something. Call 413-259-3345 and volunteer or donate to Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160.